Well, it's good to see you all here this evening. I'm Adam. I'm a pastor here at the Neighborhood Church. And tonight, if you are with us, we are starting a new series in the book of Daniel. So I'd invite you to grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. Uh, Daniel is a book in the Old Testament toward the end after a big book called Ezekiel. If you would turn there, we're going to be telling the story, retelling, and talking about what Amy just read. In Rob Bell's newest book called What is the Bible, which is pretty excellent in my humble opinion, in Rob Bell's newest book, he says the best question to ask when reading the Bible is this. Are you ready for it? Why did people find this important enough to write down? In other words, why did people find this psalm, poem, story, history, proverb, fill in the blank, why did someone find this important enough to write down? Because you've got to remember two things about this book you're holding called the Bible. The first is that it is this written record of the God who is revealing himself, he's renewing the world, and he's redeeming humanity. And he's doing something crazy that is really unusual for all the other ancient books We're convinced that God was actually partnering with humanity to renew the world. This is an incredible leap forward for humanity. The second thing you've got to remember about the Bible is that these stories were circulated for generations by word of mouth. They existed long before someone put them to paper. And so if the Bible is a record of humanity grappling with, seeking out, searching, and and learning how to live and partner with God, and then we have these stories that were lived by real people in real history, with real emotions, with real baggage, with real flaws, it stands to reason that there could have been a billion trillion things they could have written down. So we have to approach the Bible and say, why did they find this story, this thing, important enough to write down? These, in this library of books we have called the Bible, are the stories that have lasted, are the stories that have resonated, and I believe the Holy Spirit of God set in motion to get on a page. However crazy some of it may seem to us today. So when we look at the book of Daniel, which is itself a really powerful and unique and wild book, Daniel is really unusual even for the Old Testament because it's a book that is in two halves. And there are two halves that you could cut right down the middle. The first six chapters are six stories of Daniel and his friends trying to follow God's way in a culture that is hostile to God in his way. This is going to be the focus of the majority of our fall time with a few breaks here and there. And it's our series called Daniel, Countercultural Living. Now, the second half of Daniel is four visions of Daniel. And it's a way of looking ahead and looking back and kind of sorting out the same theme we're going to see each week in the first half of Daniel. And that is, no, 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 despite appearances, God really is king. And despite all the kingdoms that are coming and going, no, 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 God's kingdom will last forever. So even though there are these two halves, there's this one unity thing, uh, theme working its way through the whole thing, and that is God and his kingdom are eternal and active even in the darkness. 
And it's really strange, too, because Daniel was written in two different languages. It was written in the Hebrew language, which is the rest of the Old Testament. But then it's also written in Aramaic, which is a sister language of uh, Hebrew. And it's what Jesus spoke in his day. And it's really interesting because someone decided to write down the book of Daniel in the darkest history portion of God's people's existence. Nobody quite knows when. My humble opinion, having read more than I care to read, honestly, my brain is a little bit mush, but I'll present to you lovely people, we, we probably will think that Daniel and these stories happened around the darkest time in Israel's history called the exile. And they were shared and told and retold and retold. And the first half of book are those stories that were somewhere around the neighborhood of the time we're going to talk about in a minute called the exile. But then fast forward a few hundred years to another time when God's people were getting put through the ringer. The time right before Jesus. And that second half of the book was probably edited and compiled and put to paper much later and said, hey, remember those stories? Remember Daniel and his buddies? Remember how they lived in a hostile culture? Yeah, we need to hang on to those stories. And then more than that, let's add these visions from Daniel and these friends. Let's put it all together in order to show people that no matter how dark it gets, God's kingdom is still active. He was then, he is now. So, why did people find this important enough to write down? Why are we going to spend several weeks looking at it? I'll give you three reminders that we'll see tonight, hopefully, and for the rest of our time in Daniel. Daniel reminds us these three things at least. You ready? God and his kingdom are always active and eternal. The second thing Daniel reminds us is, no matter how dark it looks, the light is always winning. And thirdly, Daniel reminds us, we live as a kingdom alternative in a hostile culture. Can you see for these reasons why Daniel lasted? It lasted not only in the dark period of exile, it lasted not only in the dark and persecuting times before Jesus. It's crucial for us today because you look around the headlines and you see kingdoms, just like we were introduced to in the first chapter of Daniel, rising and threatening other kingdoms, right? You have seen the insane news of North Korea trying all these kinds of bombs. You have seen for years ISIS terrorizing nations, which Babylon, who we're going to meet in Daniel, used to inhabit. You see there are still nations at work in that part of the world, in our part of the world, in every part of the world, that are still rising and threatening others. But then God reminds us, Daniel reminds us, that his kingdom of peace and love are always active and at work, and they're always going to make it through the other end. And so that reminds us, when we look at Harvey and the aftermath and the devastating pictures and the devastating destruction, as Irma, as we speak, thankfully in this safe space, we've got to remember that our brothers and sisters in Florida are dealing with another hurricane. So we, while we sit here, we've got to be praying for and remembering and discerning how we might help them. We have Ecclesia churches in our network in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and I was speaking to some of them this week saying, what are you going to do? They said, well, we're canceling service and we'll let you know. So we need to be a part of this community that's still remembering them. But we look out and we say, hey, the world's a dark and scary place, and if you read too many headlines, you might think the darkness is winning. 
But even in those dark places, there are stories of hope and renewal. And Daniel reminds us of this. And then thirdly, look at our American culture today. Even the headlines this week in our city. Division over statues. Division over race. Division over politics. Division over what to do with people who uh, would be cast out into a land that they've never even been to. Even though scripture has 3,000 verses talking about caring for the foreigner or stranger. Never mind, that's another topic. We look at an America that's divided. We look at an America that's scrambling. We look at an America that's hostile. And we say, guess what? God's people have always lived in hostile cultures. We've always been called to be a kingdom alternative that's pointing to a better king and a better kingdom, and this is the good news of Jesus. Jesus came to the marginalized and the left out, and he said, guess what? You who are poor, you who are marginalized, you who are weak, you who are meek, you who are put upon, the kingdom is yours. Get on board. And we're supposed to go out announcing that Jesus is the true king. Not a president, not a dictator, not a terrorist group. And we have to bear witness with our very lives in how we love our neighbors right here, right now. Daniel's going to remind us of this. Daniel's going to remind us that the church could be a witness to the world of what it looks like to have people from all races and ethnicities and social classes gathering together around the King Jesus. Regardless of who you voted for, we can find one king overall. Daniel, Lord willing, will remind us of this. So by way of intro, as we step into the first chapter of Daniel, I want us to also keep in mind Jesus' words to which Daniel will provide an Old Testament example. Jesus' words in John chapter 17. This is Jesus praying for his disciples and could have just as easily been Daniel He says this, my prayer is not God, he's speaking to his father, not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And look at this, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus sends us disciples into a hostile world and a hostile culture. Daniel and his friends that we were just introduced to in Daniel chapter 1 were forcefully sent into the most hostile culture they could have imagined. It was called Babylon. So I'd invite you to kind of follow along as we get into some background, as we get into the story that we just read in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to see how Daniel and his friends rise up and thrive in the midst of these different crises that we're going to see. We're going to see a national crisis, we're going to see a religious crisis, and then we're going to see the personal crisis that says, what do we do now? So I'd like for you to refer to the text in your phone or on your Bible, because I'm not going to read 21 verses over again. I would love for you to see it for yourself. So first, we're entering into this hostile culture called Babylon. Chapter 1 puts us at the beginning of the darkest era that I referred to earlier called the exile. Have you heard of the exile? Let me tell you, in seminary, I wasn't quite sure when or what the exile was. Let me confess to you, I did not quite know what to make of much of this book in the Old Testament. 
So let me tell you, there's grace for you. Let me tell you in about a few minutes some background to help you understand not only Daniel chapter 1, but your whole Old Testament, okay? So Israel was a group of people that were God's people that were blessed by God to be a blessing to all the nations, Another revolutionary ancient concept. Are you with me? Everybody else was concerned about their little tribe and their little gods and their little thing. But God comes and meets a guy named Abraham. He says, you're going to have all these different people and you're going to bless all these different nations. So they're rocking and rolling and doing great things. And you hear all the greatest hits, right? You hear about Abraham. You hear about Moses. You hear about Jacob and Israel. You hear about all these dudes. Then you hear about a guy named David. We just did a series in the Psalms. David was a king. Well, David has a son named Solomon, and then Solomon's king. Well, when Solomon goes, guess what happens? The whole beautiful kingdom of God's beautiful people, supposed to bless all the nations, man, they get into a civil war because that's what people do. We bicker and fight. If you've had a sibling, you've had a civil war every week of your life. So what happens is it divides the kingdom, okay? So check this out. We're now in the neighborhood of first kings in our Old Testament. What happens is Israel becomes the name for the tribes of God's people in the north. And then what happens is Judah becomes the name of the tribes of the people in the south. Y'all heard of Jerusalem? Jerusalem was in Judah of the south. Okay, so what happens is they're just being kind of knocked around and kind of making it, making their own. They've got some bogus kings, which gives us hope for our leaders. They were not as bad as the ones we read in the Bible. Don't worry, everyone. It's going to be okay. But they have all these bogus kings running around, and they're kind of getting bullied. But then what happens is this one nation called Assyria comes and wipes out the north. And that's around 722 B.C. Okay, so 722 B.C., fast forward all the way to 605 B.C. So over 100 years later, what happens is now they're knocking on Jerusalem's door, Judah's door. Okay, they had been kicking it just fine in the south, but then the new superpower named Babylon comes knocking on Jerusalem's door. Everybody say Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Try to spell it. Good luck, I couldn't spell it right now if I tried, but let's all say Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a prince at this time, and he comes knocking on Jerusalem's door, and he says, doom, 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 I'm going to blow your house down. And they say, whoa, 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 I'm not sure about that. So he kind of just threatens them a little bit, and he fights with them a little bit. And then in 605 B.C., he takes a group of people away. And he says, by the way, I'm going to start controlling you. Just watch out. But you can hang on for a little bit because I'm going to come back, I promise. So he takes a little bit of his people, and this is probably when Daniel and his buddies are taken. Do you all remember in our reading that they were from the royal family or the noble court? Do you all remember the description of Daniel and his friends? It's there in the middle of chapter 1. They were without blemish. They were wise. They were all these wonderful things that you would love to see on your Match.com profile. He takes the best of their best, and he goes to make them the best of his best. We're going to get there in a little bit about how Daniel and his friends navigate their new role in this new court. But what you need to know now is they were probably in the first batch of those taken back to Babylon with the intent that they would come back and say, Hey, y'all remember your Jewish kids? 
Now they're Babylonian kids. Look how superior Babylon is. This is what happened a lot in the ancient times. Well, fast forward to 597. One of the kings that you can read about in 2 Kings, verse, uh, chapter 24, he gets big and brave and he tries to fight Babylon. They say, Pff. Then they buys them 10 more years. And finally, they're so put out with these rebellious Jews that Judah rebels again, but it's wiped out. And what happens is the Old Testament book of 2 Kings says more than 10,000 people are carted off in chains and away from their homeland, away from what they've known, away from their culture, and on into Babylon. The only people they left were the poor people. Because Babylon didn't care about the poor people. They didn't want them to eat their stuff. They just wanted to take them and say, our king and our gods are better. And so what happens, you see this all packed into this little verse, chapter 1, and it's fresh in the Israelites' minds. This was the darkest part of their history. And can you imagine the feeling of losing, number one, the land that God said was your land? Gone. Well, at least we've got our king, right? No, no, no. The kings are done. Let me just tell you this, Old Testament theology here. God said to David, somebody's going to be on the throne forever from your line, David. What happens when the king and his line is cut off? Now you've got theological crisis. Well, at least we have our temple, right? At least we have our priests and our systems of, of sacrifice and this. No, no, no. The death blow in 587 B.C., the temple gets wiped out. They are down land, king, temple, which means their identity goes with it. This is a devastating blow, and you cannot understand the pivot of the Old Testament. All the prophets in history that comes before, all the prophets in history that come after. Jeremiah was left with the poor folks in Babylon, and he was so beat up and broken, he wrote a book called Lamentations. So if you are depressed, we talked about depression and isolation a couple weeks ago. Lamentations reminds you you're not alone. And there's a tiny glimpse that reminds you God's at work and active and eternal even though the kingdoms of this day seem to win. This is in our scriptures. People broken, people sent away. So when we look out in the world and we see our neighbors in Houston struggling to find a place to stay, it should move in us compassion to say, we should not inhabit our world and inhabit our text as the empire of Babylon, but as the broken people of Israel who know what it's like to not have a home, as Pastor Kathy reminded us. The problem is in America, when we look at these texts, we so often come from a place of privilege and we come from a place where might makes right and we're number one, but Jesus incarnates and becomes the son of a refugee poor teenager to remind us that God is near to the broken and he's at work even in those broken and dark places. So Daniel goes and he's wondering what's happening. He goes like the Syrian refugees into Lebanon who are being beaten and put out and cast out even in Lebanon. They have no home there. They're not finding a home anywhere else. And we see time and time again people being displaced by violence and oppression. So how might we be a kingdom alternative? Well, before we get there, we see in verse 2, it's not just that their identity and their national political state is in crisis. Look at verse 2 with me. What happens after they besiege and do that first wave of taking people out? This is before they destroy the temple. You know what they did? 
they took a bunch of temple stuff. Did you see that? See, Babylon wanted to say, hey, you know what? You said that God is with you. Guess what? We're going to take your God stuff because to Babylon, their gods were stuff. You with me? They were statues. They were idols. So they were playing this game of saying, look, we've got your God. And when you read the visions in the last half of Daniel, it opens up the curtain to this ancient understanding of the cosmic battle going on that we can't see. And they had this understanding that if our country came and beat your country, it's because our God came and beat your God. So imagine you're being carted off away from your land, away from your king, away from your temple, and you know what's going with you? All the symbols of your God, and they're taunting you and saying, how strong and good is your God now? And if you're struggling to relate to the ancient context, try getting a diagnosis that is bleak, and try looking ahead and asking the question, well, why, God, has this happened? And then you might begin to feel what it looks like when everything you've known and held dear seems to be carted away in the darkness, making it that much harder to see the light. This is in our book. This is in our scripture. But Daniel's going to remind us that despite the evidence, no, God is at work. And Daniel, whoever compiled it and wrote it down, gives us a glimpse of that in verse 2. My version says the Lord delivered the king into his hand. Yours might say God gave Judah into their hand. So this is opening up another set of, God, what is going on? What is happening? How can this happen? Let me tell you this. I don't believe that God moved against his people. Hear me. What God did was remove his protection and blessing for their relationship because God told them for generations Love me first, love your neighbor, love each other, and it will go well for you. But if you forget me and begin to look like all the other nations that rise up to beat down, guess what? Like all the other nations, you'll come and then you'll go. They had been warned for generations that exile was at stake. Removal of that covenant of protection and blessing is at stake. Look with me. Flip over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel doesn't ask why, God. He knows why. He says, Jeremiah warned us. He says, Lord, great and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. We've sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and we've rebelled and we turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets. Remember this guy, Jeremiah, who's sitting in the ash heap of our temple. We didn't listen to him. We didn't listen to you. Sometimes, maybe all the time, this isn't a thus saith the Lord. I wonder, reading scripture, if not judgment, is simply God allowing us to experience the consequences of our actions. Judgment is not God so hated you, so he's going to punish you. Judgment is, if you want this way, at some point I'm going to let you have it. And what happens in the exile is this other level of brokenheartedness where when they finally look around, they say, duh, we brought it on ourselves. 
And it's in those moments that God doesn't kick them when they're down. No, he keeps Jeremiah there. He gives other prophets. He works in Daniel and his friends to say, you don't just have to survive, I'm still with you. God's power and love is not geographically based. God's power and love is not even your functional responsibility. Even when you blow it, God is still with you. God still loves you. And he's trying to ask you to get up and let's keep going. You don't just have to survive. You can even thrive in the darkest places because I promise you the light is winning. Daniel chapter 1 engages into these spaces and when it looks on the surface that the darkness is winning they say no no no. God is still somehow involved in it even though he's removed himself and allowed this to happen he's still going to bring good out of it and it leads me to this statement on the slides here sometimes I believe that God does not remove us from the dark hard places because he wants us to live as a kingdom light It's in those places that we learn to trust God and see his light working in and through us the clearest. Sometimes we pray, God, get rid of the storm. God, get rid of the storm. But other times he says, no, 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 just cry out to me and I'll meet you within it. God, get us out of the deep waters like we just sang. No, no, no. Sometimes I'm going to call you out into the deep waters. So when you start to doggy paddle and not get it on yourself, you're going to have to say, God, help me. And it causes you to lean in. I don't believe that God is the cause of the darkness and sickness and things that Scripture will point to evil and and the fall and how this world is not how God intends. But what God does is he uses those things and says, even in that, I'm going to show you that I'm still winning and I'm still with you. So I think Daniel goes into this and his friends go into this clear-headed, wide-eyed, and when they face a personal crisis of, okay, if we're in the dark, hard places and you're not going to get us out of it, if we're in here for the long run, then watch. How am I supposed to live? I think it starts with what we say often in our church. Don't ask why, God. Ask what, God, are you forming in me and through this? We say why, God. The truth is we just don't know. There's myriad wills of evil and the forces that work in the world. And there's myriad people who are free agents that make their own decisions. So why is a fool's errand? We just have no idea. What we do know is that God is in it. God is working. God is active. And so we say, okay, God, here I am. What can you do in me and through this? The cross is the supreme example of what God can do in the dark places. Supreme example of God in some way mystically removing himself and allowing Jesus to take the full weight of evil when he's killed. But God renews it and uses it to rescue and reconcile the world. We need to have a cross-centered understanding of how to live even in the dark places. Look what Daniel and his friends do. Before we get into the countercultural thing that I was so super pumped to tell you guys about this fall... This whole thing I'm calling countercultural living, let me tell you, before they do anything counter, they appear to compromise. And it really messed me up. I had a horrible week this week because I had all my designs on what I was going to tell you, lovely folks, about how Daniel was so rock and roll, punk rock, I don't care what you Babylonians say, but look at the yeses he tells them. And I'll tell you why I think he said it. 
You see it in the middle, in in verses 3 and following. You see Daniel trying to navigate how to live now in this dark and hard place. He says yes to a pagan education and enculturation. Did y'all see that? We're going to teach him the languages. Babylon had a language of the day, and then it had an ancient, like, Latin high language, and that was what their religious texts were written in. So when Daniel sets down to read this, he's reading religious texts from a religion that is not their own. It's the reason that you guys don't send your kids to another school like a Muslim school that teaches them Arabic to read the Quran. I'm not saying that as like an affront to them. I'm just saying it's the reason they're not sending our kids all, all the time to Christian schools because there's this sense in which you say, hey, let's, let's, we can open them up to these different worldviews, but it would be like sending your child to uh, this wonderful school on Beltline, Brighter Horizons. It's a great school, but instead of like learning the Jesus way, they're going to learn Arabic and they're going to learn to read, read the Quran. They say yes to that. Now, what if you feel called to the Middle East? Where are you going to send your kids then? You're going to march over to Beltline and you're going to take them to Brighter Horizons, aren't you? In some context and in some scenario, perhaps this is the right thing to do. Daniel says yes to understanding their culture and getting deep into it. Can we just pause for a minute and say how incredible and revolutionary that is? If I'm hearing the Daniel story, I'm saying, no way am I going to read your bogus Babylonian text and learn your language. Thank you very much. But just to take it a step further, then they say yes to a pagan kingdom job. After they do their vegetarian trial, and after they do their whole thing, it says that they are the best in the languages. They're the best in their form and shape and structure. They're the best in the ways of understanding and interpreting dreams. They're not only just surviving, they're thriving. And then he says, of course, we're going to put you in the kingdom's job. They've settled into this dark and hard place, and they're thriving in it. They said yes to the pagan king. Is that incredible? That's like moving and working in these different cultures in different places and saying, I'm bought in. But then finally, and this is startling, they say yes to a pagan name change. Do y'all know that Daniel meant God is my judge? Hananiah meant Yahweh has acted graciously. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Mishael says, who is like God? Did you hear that? God, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. And then they're given names with, guess what? Babylonian God, Babylonian God, Babylonian God, Babylonian God. And they said yes. And you say, well, well, they couldn't have said no because they'd be killed. Dude, spoiler alert. They're going to say no a couple other times, and it's going to be some other sermons where I'm going to say, look how punk rock they are. And they're going to go to their death, presumably. But here they say yes, until they say no. What do they say no to? They say no to one thing. They say no to the king buffet. They say no to the king's buffet. Here's why. We're not quite sure, but many people think it's because they didn't want to be unclean. They didn't want to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. 
But the thing is, is that maybe that was just something that was so ingrained in them, but they're a long way from the temple now. Well, okay, so maybe food is such their identity. You can write down Leviticus 20, verses 25 to 26. Y'all remember, we talked about it one time this summer about Peter. Remember when we're talking about embrace and, and the Spirit sending us to different cultures? Remember when God said, hey, Peter, get up and eat anything you want to eat. What did Peter say? To God, who told him to eat. What did Peter say? No way, dude. I've never eaten shrimp. He's missing out. Why? Because food was such their identity. Leviticus 20 says, be holy as I'm holy, be separate, which is what leads us to, I think, the real reason they might have said no to eating the king's buffet. Here's why. Because for them, table meant fellowship. For them, table sharing meant sharing in relationship. What did Jesus get in trouble for so often as a Jewish man? Eating with the wrong people. By the way, how many of us Christians get in trouble for being around the wrong people? Not often enough. Not often enough are we known for loving those who are unlovable. Not often enough are we known for loving and rubbing elbows with the kind of people that Jesus did. That's another sermon. They probably said no because to eat King Nebuchadnezzar's food meant a dependence on King Nebuchadnezzar. So what they say instead is, no, 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 I'm going to eat vegetables, I'm going to eat water, in order that when the time comes out and they get this guard on their side who allows them to have 10 days because God gave them favor, God is still at work, God is still active in this dark place, it says God is subtly allowing this thing to take shape so that... With Nebuchadnezzar's food, all these other guys come along and say, look how strong we are. But then you have Daniel and his three friends over here, and they say, but look how strong we are. And then, and only then, can they point to not King Nebuchadnezzar's food and say, well, King Nebuchadnezzar must have not had anything to do with how gifted and blessed these men are. So rather than say, let us be dependent on King Nebuchadnezzar's food, let us keep our identity and show in solidarity that we are dependent on a higher king. We'll take your name, we'll take your job, we'll say yes to so many things, but we're going to say no to this thing. Let me tell you this, sometimes I believe we're going to have to say no when it points to God in his kingdom way. But don't say no because it's about you and your high horse. And so I think as we draw this to a close, I I think that what we need here is wisdom and discernment to understand when to say yes and when to say no. Too many of us are growing up thinking that God dropped this book of yeses and noes into our laps and we are to do this and not that and to do this and not that. But let me tell you, as a follower of Jesus with the Holy Spirit of God, the law has been fulfilled and he's given us the spirit instead in our hearts to, I don't know, discern and use your brains that God gave you and the community that is yours and the example of Jesus to say, guess what? I am with you and I'm whispering to you where to go and where to be. And it's the reason why we have Christians that behave a certain way in Russia within their culture so that they can reach Russians within their culture. We have Christians in Latin America who are reaching Christians in Latin America. 
It's the reason why sometimes we need to say yes to things that, that maybe our brothers and sisters over there would never say yes to. Do you know that my, one of my greatest friends, my brother, Pastor Ramon, thinks it's really wild that I got a half sleeve this summer of tattoos? He thinks it's awesome secretly. He just won't admit it to me. I'm convinced. <laughs> Even though I had like five tattoos before then, but that's besides the point. The thing is this. But in his culture, Russian culture, tattoos are prison tattoos. And in here, I get to talk to a guy this week at the coffee shop in Garland that's like, wait, you're a pastor? Wait, you're what? A Christian? You can what? I said, there's a gospel, and it's according to Leviticus 19.18. What is Leviticus 19.18? It says, you shall not mark your body. But Jesus has fulfilled the law, and he's written it on our hearts, and we follow Jesus No longer Leviticus. Leviticus came and it was good and it was for that season. Now we have the ability to say yes to some things and no to the others. I grew up as a Baptist. And I grew up where it wasn't so explicitly stated, but it was in the culture that you don't drink. And now I'm telling you, what if the Spirit of God calls you to go to happy hour with your friends that don't know Jesus? What if the Spirit of God is blessing you and sending you to Lower Greenville? to have a beer with your friends. Oh, she's laughing. Y'all, y'all. Shout out Lower Greenville. Holla. God has blessed you and sent you, Toby and Amy. Go and be lights in the darkness of Lower Greenville. We need wisdom and discernment between our yeses and between our noes. Wisdom I'll offer to you is deciding on what's right based on situations, right? The culture's experience and good judgment. Discernment is deciding where God is leading you based on Scripture, listening to the Spirit and others, and Jesus' example. God has given us the Spirit. And I will give you one thing to write down we don't have time to look at. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 33. Paul says, if you want to eat this, great. If you don't want to eat that, great. The litmus test is, how is it going to affect your neighbor? So go to happy hour or don't. Arab Christians dress with a hijab or don't. Celebrate this holiday or don't. But would we be people that are not looking to isolate and escape, but to incarnate and engage the culture like Daniel and his friends? They had to say yes so that they would make a lasting kingdom impact even in the darkest season of God's people's history. They showed us that there is no excuse and no time in which you cannot engage and be a light. They showed us and gave us permission that even in the dark and hard places, God has you there to work. Jeremiah, when he said you're headed to exile, he said, Prosper, pray for them, bless them. As they're carted off to to Babylon, he says, go and be a light in a dark place. And would we do the same? And remember that God and his kingdom are always active and eternal. That no matter how dark it looks, the light is winning. And would we live as God's kingdom alternative, even in a hostile culture? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the example of the men and women who have gone before us and shown us how to love and lead and live 
in the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that healed and blessed and, and, and spoke life is within us. Would we have discernment of when to say yes in our cultures, in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods? Would we have wisdom when to say yes and wisdom when to say no? And will we do it because we're loving our neighbor and we're trying to be a light? Would we follow the example of Daniel and his friends? And would you bless us on this journey as we look more and more into these spaces and places of how to live as a kingdom alternative and to live as a countercultural witness to the king and the kingdom that will never end? Amen.